Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, a couple of special messages. You might want to call them addendums. In fact, that's what they are, but you might also want to call them an excursus or an excursion. And I've decided to do this before plowing any further into Hebrews chapter 8 and into the what I would call the enlarged heart of Hebrews. There's a heart, but there's also an enlarged heart heart and the enlarged heart of Hebrews is 8 1 through 10 18 so we're about ready to in our excursion in this homily enter into the heart of Hebrews before we do an addendum that I think is going to be very important and relevant to today on the level of our time or on the level of today the Most High God and the Universal Priesthood of Jesus. And today is part one. Father, open our hearts and open our eyes to understand the significance of you as El Elyon, the Most High God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. These next two increments, it would be 218 and 219 are an addendum and they're going to serve a purpose to us on the level of our time because at this time in history like other times but specifically at this time there are many gods small g who are vying for our allegiance and there are many lords small l who are oppressive lords and who are also vying to have dominion over us and far be it from us to have allegiance to either other gods or other lords. The Most High God and the Universal Priesthood of Jesus. For several weeks now I've been on this topic, meditating on it and considering it, studying it and expanding it and I think again that it has particular relevance to us. Call us Call it an addendum, a two-part addendum, or call it an excursus or an excursion, a two-part excursion. But it's something that we have between 7 and 8 of Hebrews. Melchizedek, a scriptural prefiguration of Jesus, was identified right out of the gate in Hebrews as king of Salem, priest to God most high. God most high in the Hebrew is El Elyon. That's E-L and then E-L-Y-O-N. El Elyon. The Greek is the phrase that we have in our caption today, which will be priest to God most high. And we have the Greek phrase, and you'll see it in our printed version of this. And the word is found, priest to God most high, is found in Hebrews 7.1. But you can also confer with Genesis 14.18, 14.19, 14.20, and 14.22 for that title, most high. 
Also, Numbers 24:16, where we've already looked at it in a previous increment, a significant reference to the name of God, the Most High. The name, the Most High God, then, is found four times in Genesis 14, three of those times in connection with Melchizedek, who is said to be, again, priest of the Most High God. Our archpriest, Jesus, is certainly priest to God Most High. In Revelation 1.6, this is affirmed when Jesus Christ is said to have, quote, made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And that, quote, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory and dominion belongs to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, precisely because he is the most high God. So-called gods may be said to have dominion over such and such a village or tribe, nation, or some stellar or terrestrial element of nature. But the true God has dominion over all as God most high. As Melchizedek was said to be a priest to God most high as a prefiguration of Jesus, so Jesus is priest to God most high. It doesn't say that Melchizedek is priest of the God of Israel, but of God most high, thus suggesting that this God's dominion extends beyond Israel, perhaps universally, extensionally, as well as forever, chronologically, through all of time, as well as beyond and outside of time. This Jesus, archpriest of the Most High God, is himself God Most High as the eternally begotten Son of the Most High God. And he is, quote, the man Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2.5, as well as the Son of Man, which is replete through the Gospels, notably in John 1.51 and 3.13-14. Melchizedek was distinguished from the priests of other cultures at the time of Abraham, and even of other nations. For these were priests to various gods, small g, Elohim in the Hebrew, with a small e we could say, gods whether familial, tribal, or national. Melchizedek was also distinct from the priests of the Aaronic order, in the sense that the sons of Aaron were priests and archpriests to the God of Israel. Now, God Most High is, of course, the same divine being as the God of Israel. Joshua 24, 23, Ruth 2, 12, 1 Samuel 1, 17, etc. I'll give you many verses in the printed version. But the name God Most High is more overtly universalistic. It is a more overtly and blatantly universalistic title of the one 
true God. Because it implies that this God is of and over all nations, tribes, families, and people, and not just of and over Israel. Now, in his book entitled The Names of God, Andrew Jukes asks the right rhetorical questions for our addendum. And so I'm including three quotes of him in this from his book, The Names of God. First quote says this, And does not our Lord equally reveal El Elyon, or the Most High, who has, quote, a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and is thus linked, not with the elect only, please notice this, not with the elect only, but with all men. And does not our Lord equally reveal El Ilion, or the Most High, who has a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and is thus, and I'm emphasizing this, linked, not with the elect only, but with all men. Now, when Jukes uses the term all men, Barth does the same thing. Men of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries used the word men, all men, and they meant all humankind. So, of course, that brings an offense today, but I really can't care about that right now. When I quote these things, that's what they mean, all humanity. These rhetorical questions, just the right ones for our addendum, must be answered with an emphatic affirmative. El Elyon is linked not only with the elect. Now, let's play with this term elect a little bit. By elect here, in Jukes' context, it means the people of Israel. But El Elyon is the God not only of the elect, meaning the people of Israel, but of all people everywhere from all times and eras. Now, another clip from Jukes fuels our excursus here. And this is a, another quote I'm going to make unapologetically, and there's a third. Still more does our Lord reveal the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. In that having humbled himself, God has greatly exalted him and made him prince of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5, king as well as priest, head of all principality and power, Colossians 2.10, and head of every man, every human being, 1 Corinthians 11.3. All things are put under him, and yet, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. For both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. Hebrews 2, 8 to 11. Jukes goes on to say, what is all this but the revelation of the Most High who has acknowledged man as a partaker of his nature saying, Israel is my son, my firstborn, Exodus 4.22. And again, you are gods, 
And all of you, children of the Most High. Melchizedek was a king and a priest to God Most High. Long before Aaron and his sons were priests and archpriests of the God of Israel. Again, Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. Thus, he was not a priest of any or even collectively of all of the gods, Elohim, of other cultures or nations. Though he was from Salem, linked to Shalom, and linked also to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he was priest to God Most High. Melchizedek was not a divine personage, but a man made to prefigure in some ways the divine man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is also a man. As a priest, he has to be a man because, quote, every archpriest taken from men, notice that phrase, taken from men, is appointed in representation to God for the people, says Hebrews 5.1. Jukes, still again, one more time, in his book, The Names of God. It's an extensive quote, but I think it's worth leaving in our addendum. Christ, as the revealer of God, fills many relationships, but none grander than that he is man, capital M. And as man, capital M, is related, and note this phrase again, I've emphasized it in the printed version, not to the elect only, but to all men. For indeed God is related to all men, for, quote, Adam was the son of God, close quote. Therefore the gospel, which specially reveals our Lord as son of man, with distinct purpose, traces his descent from God through Adam. Luke 3.22, Luke 3.38. Man is son of God, though he knows it not. And in and through Christ inherits a priesthood, which, like that of Melchizedek, rests not on law, but on relationship. Still more does our Lord reveal the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. In that, having humbled himself, God has highly exalted him. And made him prince of the kings of the earth. But of course, the man Christ Jesus is also the divine and eternal, eternally begotten Son of God. Now note what I call the blessed phrase in the first of the above quotations of Jukes. Not with the elect only, but with all men. And not to the elect only, but to all men in the third quotation. 
Now, since we've been considering some of the flaws and shortcomings of the reformers, we should think of John Calvin in contrast with this Most High God, who did not neglect, as Calvin did, the non-elect. Let me say that again. Let us consider and think of John Calvin in contrast with, in contrast to the Most High God, who did not neglect, as Calvin did, the non-elect. Barth noted that Calvin found no place, and I'm quoting Barth here in a few snippets also. Barth noted that Calvin, quote, found no place for a recognition of the universal relevance of the existence of the man Jesus, of the sanctification of all men as it has been achieved in him. Please notice that Calvin found no place for this. His system of doctrine has no place for the, I would say, the universal significance of Jesus Christ, to say nothing of his universally saving significance. Barth goes on to note, for Calvin, participation with Christ, quote, and the justification and sanctification grounded in it is a divine action which only has particular significance. We're dealing with the flaws and faults of the reformers here at least momentarily. Further, in Calvin's conception, God is a God, quote, again from Barth, whose mercy is limited to them and whose love is restricted by a limit which he, God himself, has arbitrarily and inscrutably set. But since this is not a total love, It cannot be accorded a total confidence. Now, we could expand on that for a long time and with great importance attached to that. And so I have to agree with Barth about Calvin that this weakness in his system of doctrine cannot be too greatly deplored by us. And that surely we have to look resolutely beyond his conception, again, to use Barth's words. Now, just as there was no love of God in those who were seeking to kill Jesus in the days of his flesh, John 5.18, John 5.42, so the love of God, and I'm speaking now of the love of God in its totality, which true faith discerns, The love of God is not in such a conception as Calvin's, which proclaims a double predestination, and by that is meant of some to eternal life and of some to eternal damnation, and links election to an inscrutable decision in God rather than locating it entirely in Jesus Christ and him crucified, dead, and raised, now exalted at God's right hand as the sir of all human beings, single inclusive representative of all human beings, both 
the so-called elect, I'm speaking of Calvin's conception now, not of Jukes' conception of Israel, but of Calvin's idea of elect and the so-called reprobates in Calvin's idea of the so-called non-elect. So the elect, we're using that word again, the elect in its special sense, in the limited horizon of men and of their doctrines, may constitute a severely restricted company of human beings whom God preordained to eternal life and eternal bliss while leaving the non-elect and the countless reprobates, as they're called, to eternal perdition. To others, the elect, as they're called, may be rightly a reference to Israel, to whom, as Paul says, belongs the election. The election belongs to Israel, and we could go on with this, but the Israel of God is Jesus Christ, to whom the election also belongs, And if the election ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ, it belongs to all men and women in him who will be made alive in him. But that's just a hint of where you can take this, where I'm not taking it today. So to others, the elect may be rightly, rightly a reference to Israel, to whom Paul Paul says belongs the election as those loved by God in the patriarchs. Romans 11.28, Isaiah 45.4. Indeed, Israel as a nation is elect in a proleptic sense and in anticipation and representation of a universal election in Jesus. As with all things scriptural, election as a primal doctrine must ultimately be determined Christologically and defined and realized in Jesus Christ. He is God's elect living cornerstone. 1 Peter 2.4 and 2.6. Many people stumble over him. And he was truly foreknown. He, Christ, was truly foreknown before the foundation of the world and was revealed in these last times for us. For us, 1 Peter 1.20. As God's elect, and that's what God calls him in Isaiah 42.1. The same elect who is God's servant, by whose suffering many, that is all, are justified in Isaiah 53.11. God's elect. He comprises and represents all of Israel and all of mankind. In him, Jesus Christ. Not only is all of Israel elect and saved, Romans 11.26 and 11.28, but so is all of humanity, including those whom certainly certain deplorable systems, and I'm saying this again, including those whom certain deplorably limiting systems of doctrine or dogma refer to as reprobates and whom these systems consider to be hopelessly doomed, no matter what they do or don't do. And again, I want to emphasize this. That's because 
the system that is sometimes called Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism or whatever you want to call it, places the decision for election in some inscrutable decision made in God rather than in Jesus Christ, in him crucified, raised, and exalted. But it is precisely those reprobates, and I'm going to use that term on purpose because that's how probably many of us are referred to, whose rejection and therefore whose reprobation Jesus bore, carried with him, endured. I'll say that again. It is precisely these reprobates whose rejection and therefore whose reprobation Jesus bore as he was willingly made a curse for us. In Galatians 3.13, he died as the reprobate. He died as the cursed. He died being made sin. He died as the man of sin, the lawless man. Made sin for us so that we, the so-called elect, and the so-called reprobate may constitute the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Now here's an illustration, and I hope you'll picture this clearly. Two robbers, duo lestai, or sometimes called insurrectionists, were crucified with Jesus. Together with him, with him, S-U-N. Very intimate phrase meaning with. That's almost translated in in some cases. Two robbers, highwaymen, bandits, insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, were crucified with Jesus. Staurontai sun auto, with him. According to Matthew 27, 38, and Matthew 27:44. According to Luke 23:32, two criminals or evildoers, this time not leste but kakurge or kakurgoi. Kakurgoi. You'll see it in print duo. Two evildoers were led away to be put to death with him. Jesus, sun auto, ane rethenai, rethena, also found in print. Mark, the gospel writer, says that Jesus was crucified with two robbers, as does Matthew and Luke also testify. But Mark specifically notes in Mark fifteen twenty seven that, quote, one was on his right and another on Jesus' left. In some translations, Mark 15, 28, and this is plausible if not supposed to be part of the original text, it's still plausible. Mark 15, 28 adds that this was in fulfillment of the scripture that says, and he was counted among the lawless, Isaiah 53, 12. In John 19, 18, to bring in the fourth gospel, quote, the beloved disciple, close quote, testified that Jesus was crucified with one malefactor 
on one side and one on another, and that Jesus was in between them. Meson de ton Jesun. In between them. And so there is, it is true that Jesus was crucified with one malefactor, murdering thief on one side, on his left, and another murdering thief on his right. Now a Calvinist, or an Arminian for that matter, in the quiz question, are you an Arminian or a Calvinist, I would say neither. I'm more of a Bartian, but that's, nobody cares. Now, a Calvinist, or an Arminian for that matter, may reason that because one thief was on Jesus' right and another on his left, that this pictured something like the sheep and the goats, that one thief was repentant and therefore saved, while the other remained unrepentant and was therefore lost and would die and go to hell. Our Calvinist and Arminian may join forces here and further buttress their argument with the fact that, as Luke noted, one thief asked the Lord to remember him when Jesus came into his kingdom. Luke 23, 42. But we would have to reply that in all four Gospels, and this is my reply, all four Gospels, Holy Scriptures all, the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus was crucified with both criminals. Both criminals. The primal fact is that Jesus was crucified with them and that both criminals died with Jesus. When Jesus died, in fact, all died. So the salvation of the so-called repentant thief wasn't guaranteed to him because he stopped maligning Jesus and rebuked the other thief and asked to be remembered by him. Nor was the damnation of the other so-called unrepentant thief made sure by his apparent lack of repentance. Rather, both were saved as all human beings are saved because we all died with Christ. And when one died, all died. When one died for all, all died. Paul speaks for us all when he says, as the worst of sinners, in 1 Timothy 1.15, I was crucified with Christ. Crucified and with become one word there, sustarizo, together with. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2.20. Paul says nothing about his repentance there or his faith in Jesus Christ there or his suddenly becoming a good guy there. He simply says, I was crucified. He was crucified with Christ before he was anything. Paul himself, a criminal, incidentally, was crucified with Christ, and yet he lives. And this is the case with all human beings, because when one died for all, all died. Can I emphasize that too much? No. 2 Corinthians 5.14. 
And in Christ, all will be made alive. Can I emphasize that too much? No. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Jesus' atoning death was not limited to, quote, unquote, the elect, as the Calvinist would aver, and as the Calvinist would define the elect. Nor was his death, which is acknowledged by the Arminian to be for all, but only beneficial to the repentant or believing man or woman. Jesus' death wasn't only for the believing or repentant man or woman, even though beneficial or done for all. And what's the difference? Arminians say his, it was a universal atonement, but it was only beneficial to those who believe. What's the difference in hope that that presents from the Calvinist who says limited atonement? There's not much difference at all. His death was not only for all, it benefits all unto eternal life. It is God's gift. If eternal life is God's gift through Jesus Christ our Lord, then what did you do and what did I do to get that gift? It is God's gift, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is as universal a gift as the wages of sin on sinners. The most high God, there he is again, the most high God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not just the so-called repentant and not just the Calvinistic elect, but the repentant and the reprobate. As dead flies in a perfumer's ointment send forth an offensive stench, Ecclesiastes 10.1, so the humanly and indeed sinfully conceived dogmas of double predestination, meaning some human beings to heaven and others to hell, there is a double predestination, but it's different from that. And the double outcome of the last judgment, some human beings justified and others condemned, Instead of those, and the supposedly inscrutable doctrine of an election not determined by and in Jesus Christ, but by some impenetrable decision in the divine will, well, those render that dogma odious. The church should put some distance between her and that doctrine, a doctrine that is infused with men's conception of election and reprobation and even of salvation and condemnation. The name Most High also appears, as we've seen in a previous increment, in Numbers 24, 16 to 17, in a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in Balaam's fourth prophetic oracle. I'm going to read I think it's kind of a mixture of various translations with my own take on this, Numbers 24, 15 through 17. He took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, says, The man who truly sees, one who truly understands the nature of true insight of the Most High, hupsisto, of the Most High, 
and who sees a divine vision in sleep when the eyes of his heart had been unveiled. I will point to him. But not now. I consider him blessed, but not near. A star shall arise, anatello in the Hebrew, or anatello in the Greek of this, as in Hebrew 7.14, out of Jacob. A star shall arise, anatello, a word for resurrection, out of Jacob. A man shall rise up, anistemi, another word for resurrection, out of Israel. And he shall crush the leaders of Moab and shall spoil all the sons of Seth. Now, this oracle of Balaam's is ultimately a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the universal subordination of all humanity to him, which is symbolized in the leaders of Moab and all the sons of Seth. Again, I mention this because the term most high applied to God three times in connection with Melchizedek in Genesis. In Numbers, the title is given in connection with what is to Balaam, not now and not near. To Balaam at that time, not near and not now. But to us, past and very present, the resurrection of Jesus. The star from Jacob and the man from Israel, whose birth, incidentally, was announced by a star. More likely a luminary or a configuration of several planets. It's notable that in Revelation 22:16b, in the last self-description of Jesus in the Bible, he says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Melchizedek was priest to the Most High God. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, and he is a priest forever. So you can link up Hebrews 7, 14, and 15 with this oracle of Balaam, Balaam's fourth prophetic oracle in Numbers 24, 16, and 17. I'll just quote briefly Hebrews 7, 14, and 15. And this is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek arises on Atello and who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent, but based on the power of a life that cannot be brought to an end. All of this attributes to the Most High God, both a chronological and an extensional universal dominion. The priest through the Most High God represents the God whose dominion is universal and diachronic. That the Most High God has an archpriest between him and all of mankind and all of creation tells us that through such an archpriest, God eternally and infinitely benefits the whole of creation and in that sphere and realm, all of humanity. Now, a couple more considerations. It was a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and not a king of Israel, who called the God of Daniel and his friends 
the most high God or the most high. Daniel 3, 26, 4, 2, 4, 24 in ancient Shinar or Babylon or modern Iraq. In fact, in Daniel, God is called the most high nine times and the most high God four times by men. And not only by men, but by a watcher, a name for a certain brand of angels, a holy one who came down from heaven, Daniel 4.13 and 4.17. He's called the Most High by an angelic interpreter of Daniel's apocalyptic vision, Daniel 7.16-18. And he's called the Most High God by Daniel himself in Daniel 5.18. Now, it's notable that the action and history of Daniel occurs outside of Israel and in a pagan land, Shinar, Babylon, Iraq. The God of Israel is not at all absent from the proceedings there because his range of redemptive activities is not limited to Israel. Or to the people of Israel. He is acknowledged and rightly so. Outside of Israel. And even by beings. Rational beings. Who are usually outside the visible dimension. He is called God Most High. This is no doubt in anticipation of the eschaton. When according to the solemn oath of God. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Isaiah 45:23 compared to Philippians 2:10 and 11. And this oath is made by God in the context of quote the everlasting salvation of Israel by Yahweh. Isaiah 45:17 and 25, who is quote God the creator of the heavens and the earth, close quote, who is quote the Lord and there is no other. Close quote. Isaiah 45, 18. It is also made this oath of God that every knee will genuflect to him and every tongue pledge allegiance gladly and praise him. This oracle is also found, or this oath is also found in the context of the salvation of all the ends of the earth in Isaiah 45, 22. So throughout this prophetic passage in Deutero-Isaiah, and I'm speaking of 45, God distinguishes himself as a righteous God and Savior, Isaiah 45, 21, from a, quote, God, small g, in whom there is no salvation, Isaiah 45, 20. So perhaps most of all, the God of Israel a.k.a., also known as, also rightly called, the Most High God, should be distinguished and well-known as a God who saves, a God of salvation, Psalm 68.20, Septuagint 67.21. And I'll close this first part of our addendum to Hebrews 7.1 with this. And this will also be my closing prayer. Thanks be to God, this God who saves, this most high God is our God. Amen.